0: This podcast proudly brought to you by Boss Shot Shells. Old school is back in season. Experience superior shells when you go with Boss Shot Shells. Their premium non-toxic bismuth shells knock birds down so hard that the old guys might just think they're shooting lead again. Make sure you check out Boss Shot Shells for your next purchase of shotgun shells. A few things before we start with the podcast. It's Wednesday, so we pushed out the podcast a little bit early uh, just because I wanted to get this announcement to you guys. I will be at the Indianapolis Deer, Turkey, and Waterfowl Expo with the guys from HTR um, Thursday through Friday coming up. So that's going to be the 21st through the 24th. So if you're in the Indy area, you want to come check out the waterfowl stuff. Uh, make sure you swing by and say hey we love seeing you guys love saying hey so that'd be awesome today's episode we are joined by bob owens from lone duck and uh, he is a dog trainer and also a podcaster as well and his podcast is all about training dogs and talking hunting dogs and that kind of stuff so excellent excellent guest Um, And I I really hope you guys enjoy this one. So without further ado, quick word from our partners, and we'll jump right into the podcast.
1: Hi, this is Killian Bailey from Bailey's Game Calls. I'm here to tell you about our duck, goose, and wood duck calls. We use 3D printing technology to revolutionize the industry. This new technology allows us to create calls with the same sound as wood, acrylic, or anything in between that's at a fraction of the price make sure to check out baileysgamecalls.com for your next game call. Hey guys, Tim from HTR here. Let's talk about how comfortable your blind is. If it's like mine, comfort is not the word that comes to mind. And if you've ever spent hours in it waiting for birds to come in while lying in wet, cold, muddy, frozen ground, you know the feeling. That's what got us to thinking there must be a better way. The Layout Lounge fits in any layout blind. Warm, comfortable, and durable. So unhook that cheap pad from inside your layout line and put in our layout lounge today. You'll be glad you did. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and HTR
0: What's going on, folks? I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles. Got my substitute co host alongside me today, Hunter from HTR Innovations. And our guest for tonight is Bob from Lone Duck. How you doing?
2: Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're doing well today. We're We had a great day out there training the dogs and actually currently right now I have 12 Labrador Retriever puppies that are four weeks old. So my hands are full, but it's a really, really fun experience and fun to see them grow and develop. So having a great day and ready to rock the podcast with you guys.
0: Awesome. We really appreciate you coming on here with us. 12 puppies though. That sounds like something that would definitely, um, you know, keep your hands full.
2: (laughs) Yeah, man, uh, for sure. It's been a fun experience with watching uh, my dog Cruise um, be a mother and deliver the puppies, and watch the little puppies go from mini guinea pig looking, you know, barely moving and just making noises and feeding and sleeping to now they're becoming adventurous and eating on their own. And just, you know, when they see me and hear me come in, they just all get up, run over. It's, it's pretty wild. So it's been a good experience.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So kind of to kick the podcast off,
2: um, a general question for you: how much do you get out and duck hunting during the year? Oh, I think the answer is as often as possible. Um, Luckily, because of the business that I'm in um, and it being my own, I kind of can dictate how much I can get out. And then I can also squeeze out and like take a client and their dog hunting. So generally speaking, I'll get to hunt two days during the week and most both days weekends. Um, And then usually my life goal is to get one road trip in a year, if not two. So this year we went to, uh, the Chesapeake Bay and hunted with a buddy, Matt Peel. And then we also, where did we go? Well, I guess I hunted South Carolina, uh, cause I lived down here in the winter time and there was one other place. Oh, Long Island for sea duck hunting. So it was pretty wild. We had a really good duck season. Um, I think across the country, everybody said they struggled, but I kind of put in the work this year. We scouted hard, found the birds, and we we did pretty good. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is definitely a, a lot of days you get out there for sure. And, and some good,
0: sounds like some good trips as well.
2: Yeah, I love it. Um, you know, part of the fun is meeting new people and then seeing their style of hunting as well as just new places that are, you know, the Chesapeake Bay, if you haven't ever hunted it. It's so nostalgic and waterfowling heritage is so strong that it's just you kind of feel like it duck hunting down there it's just it's pretty wild
0: awesome yeah i'll say one thing that uh i don't know if you've been keeping this on your radar probably since you're living in new york but um what are your thoughts uh with the updates they're going to be doing in the atlantic flyway isn't it they they're cutting down the season to 30 days or something along those lines
2: That I don't know the answer to, but I did hear that they're doing the two-duck minimum, or excuse me, the two-mallard minimum. You know, here's my take, dude. Does it stink? Sure. Am I disappointed? Yes. But they are biologists for a reason. I have to trust that they know what they're doing, and five years from now, maybe the mallard duck population is going to be booming, and we can have maybe more liberal limits. So. You know, as long as it's not forever and the biologists are doing what's best for the duck, I'm okay with it. Yeah,
0: that's definitely a a great attitude to have coming into it. Um, I know if it was me, I would be disappointed as well. Uh, But like you said, hopefully they're doing it for the the better of the the sport and the better of duck hunting. Um, And later on the road, it can, you know, lead to better things. Right. Um, I mean, but back of- in the
2: day, they did it with the Canada geese. You know what I mean? And then Canada geese went skyrocketing with their population. So maybe they know what they're doing. I just, again, it's like I have to trust them as biologists. I feel like we all get this cynical look at it like they're trying to take our ducks away. They're trying to take hunting away. I hope that's not the case. I just hope that they're trying to boost population and we're good to go yeah
0: so with that kind of being the the outlook for the near future uh do you guys have a lot of other ducks to chase i know personally in our area if they did that with mallards in our season we really don't shoot anything else we shoot some wood ducks and maybe some till here or there but the large majority i'd say 99 percent or 95 percent of the ducks we shoot are mallards
2: oh uh i hear you i think the answer is no. I mean, early season in, in the October seasons, we're killing teal, wood ducks, once in a while, a gadwall, mallards, blacks. So we get a nice mixed bag. Um, and then as the season progresses and that migration starts happening, we're we're getting on to divers, uh, ringnecks, golden eye, bluebill, redhead. And then you're still getting your mallards, but I don't think there might've been three or four hunts where I killed four mallards and got my mallard limit. So I'm not, it's not going to hurt me that bad. Uh, we can chase all different kinds and still have fun, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. Do you do a lot of sea duck hunting out there?
2: Um, So I, sea ducks would be like your scoters and eiders um, and we get them, rarely and like old squaw uh, we would get them rarely like Lake Ontario and then even more rare in the Finger Lakes where we hunt majority. So we're getting divers like the bluebill, redhead. redhead um, and I would have to say no I'm not an expert at it. I'm still figuring that out but our season has changed so much over the last few years where the migration It's just not, it's hard to pattern it, right? So we found that this year we smoked them with divers and we tried really hard. We scouted really hard. We found them and we got them. If we had not hunted divers, I probably would have had a pretty rough season. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of just scouting. Hey, this is what we found. Put the rig together and go after.
0: All right. And before we get a little too far, you know, uh, into the sure. podcast, let's go ahead and step back, and you know, let us know a little bit about who you are, um, where you live, that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, so I'm Bob Owens. I'm the president of Lone Duck Outfitters and Kennels. So, Lone Duck Outfitters, I started seven years ago, and it was and is a lifestyle brand that revolves around the gun dog community, and my little saying is the unspoken bond. I kind of coined it, you know, seven years ago and sharing your passion for the unspoken bond and the memories we make with our dogs in the field, you know, from finding the right puppy and raising that puppy and having all these dreams and aspirations of what this puppy can turn into and become and working with that dog all spring, all summer, all fall. And here we go, duck season opens and all that hard work and the promise uh, that you two put in together throughout all that time, um, that culmination comes down to you know the hunt and and shooting the birds and having that dog put all that hard work out there and and learn and grow and they become a hunting dog. Um, so that lifestyle brand developed into becoming a dealer for e collars and training equipment, and it took me all over the East coast and out to the Midwest, uh, and traveling to different hunt tests and field trials and selling my gear. And I met a lot of great professional retriever trainers and those guys would take me in. I'd hang out with them all week, sell my gear on the weekends, learn, grow, become a better trainer myself. And about three and a half years ago, I left my day job gave my passion a run for its money. And I moved to South Carolina and worked with a professional trainer for about a year. And I cut my teeth every single day working his young dog group. So dogs that had no idea what's going on, we're doing basic obedience, collar conditioning, force fetch, um, in and out of boats, on and off dog stands, decoys, gunfire, live birds, dead birds, and all the way through T pattern, basically, which is starting to teach the dog how to handle on blinds. And so I did that for again about a year and missed my family up in New York and wanted to make a go of all of this myself. And so I moved back to New York, um, took my first few client dogs on, did a lot of obedience and family dogs, and more gun dogs rolled in. And then the balance between obedience and gun dogs flipped and now i'm 98% gun dogs and 2% house dogs and um and the lifestyle brand still exists i mean to me lone duck is all of it it's it's the dogs themselves it's me as who i am helping people and teaching people through social media how to work with their dog It's the clothing. It's the puppies we're producing. It's the unspoken bond and everything that that's about. So um, the cool part is because I own the business and I can be flexible from May until January, I live in Syracuse, New York. Um, That's where my family is from. That's where I grew up, central New York, right in the Finger Lakes region, great duck hunting and goose hunting. And then in the wintertime I come back to South Carolina in the Charleston area and we get to train in beautiful weather and run the dogs in the wintertime where we definitely couldn't be doing that in New York right now. So it's cool.
0: Awesome. Kind of kind of to step back to something you said. Um, when I first listened to your podcast, shout out to that as well. Um, it is the it's a, <laughs> it's the lone duck. Gun Dog Chronicles
2: is that correct? Did I say it right? <laughs> yeah, it's a mouthful. Everything I do seems to be a mouthful. <laughs> it, it is yeah, a, mouth- it a mouthful. Lone, Lone Ducks, Gun Dog Chronicles. Um, yeah, it's been fun. It is, I didn't ever think I'd get into it, and then we did a few and did a few, and we're loving it.
0: Yeah, and then uh, so I listened to the first one a while back, and just straight off, you kind of go into what you call um, a poem about the unspoken bond and you know it was just really cool to hear it explained that way uh the unspoken bond and if you're a dog owner it's something you've definitely experienced with you and your your hunting companion um so yeah it was just something that really hit home with me and I really enjoyed the way you put that
2: that's uh yeah I appreciate that that's a really nice compliment it it was a story that I wrote and then a buddy of mine who's big into marketing helped me make it a little bit more eloquent but it is the culmination from picking the puppy to the dog's first hunt to it being a seasoned veteran at six years old and you know nothing can phase it it just crushes to being nine ten eleven years old and slowing down and and watching that dog progress and age and those memories that you make training and hunting and riding in the truck and you know my old dog has been there from the end of college to my first job to moving to South Carolina to moving home to traveling all over the country with me and hunting all different states like those are memories that no one can take away even after that dog's gone and that's what the unspoken bond's about
0: yeah that's pretty cool and kind of, kind of a quick story about my dog. My, my dog's name is Chief, and uh, I named him after my grandpa's dog, Chief. And my, my grandpa was big into Upland game, um, and so Chief for him was uh, English Pointer. So when I was a kid, I loved that dog. So I named my first hunting dog, Chief, after his dog. And uh, Chief's actually been there for almost every hunt I've, I've been. And I'm, I'm relatively new to duck hunting. I've only been duck hunting for uh, three years and and chief is actually he just turned 3 this week and my very first hunt you know chief went on it and neither one of us really knew what we were doing we just went out there me and him my canoe and 6 month old dog way too soon to take a dog but didn't know any better and really could just feel the unspoken bond having that journey with him
2: Dude, that's uh, very similar to my story. I, I had been duck hunting a good amount before I got my first dog, but I I threw myself to the wolves with waterfowl hunting because of my dog. And I always loved sporting breeds. I was raised – uh, I've always loved them. And I didn't care whether it was a pointer or uh, – any any dog with a purpose, I I wanted to learn how they learned. I wanted to be involved. So maybe that's German Shepherds doing bite work. I love it. I just love dogs that do what they're meant to do. Right. So the sporting yep. breeds really took my heart and, uh, and I read and watched DVDs and I knew more about it before I even had a dog or picked a puppy. And, Yeah, the dog is what made me become a ferocious duck hunter versus being a ferocious duck hunter and then getting a dog.
0: Yeah, I can see that for sure. So kind of going into that lane, um, where did you start hunting or how did you get started into hunting? I know you said as a kid you grew up around the Finger Lake region. So when did you start hunting? And just tell us a little bit about your journey as a duck hunter.
2: So my dad was a police officer and, um, uh, we grew up shooting from the time I can remember, uh, 22s, plinking balloons and, you know, two liter soda bottles with water pouring out. So I'd always been in the outdoors and shooting and hiking and, and, uh, respect for guns and, and wildlife and conservation. But because my dad was in law enforcement, he didn't really like hunting anymore he lost his taste for it when he started seeing a lot of bad stuff, right? Like he didn't want to take Mm -hmm. a deer's life anymore because he'd seen enough of the problems on the streets. So we were raised in the outdoors and shooting and all that, but we didn't really hunt much. So I was probably 15 and I went on a duck hunt with my grandfather and my dad and some uncles and a guide. And he had a yellow lab named Deke and we shot ducks and I watched that dog work. And I'm like, something clicked. This is for me. And I did a little more and a little more. And when I got to college, I hunted a lot with, uh, I played rugby in college. So a couple of my rugby buddies and I would go out into the country and man, we would do a lot of sitting and not shooting, but we hunted right. And, And learned. And then when I got out of college, I moved to Ireland, played rugby over there. And I got home, I don't know, a couple months later and I got my first job and I would bet you it wasn't even close to my second paycheck and I had a puppy. So It was like the first thing I bought when I finally had some cash was a puppy and uh, I haven't looked back since, man.
0: So uh, which dog was your first puppy?
2: Uh, his name is Buck, uh, Yellow Lab. He's almost nine years old now.
0: In uh, semi-retirement, or is he still a hunter?
2: Semi-retirement. So he has hip dysplasia, and kind of one of those things where I did all the research on his pedigree. Uh, parents were good. Everything you or I would tell anyone about trying to find the right dog, and it just kind of bad luck. So he has hip dysplasia. He's arthritic, and I trained him hard. He hunted hard. We went along, you know. Long, rough road for him. So he's pretty achy. Any hunt we go on has to kind of be open water where he's just swimming. Um, That or like pheasant hunting with an hour where before he could go six hours. So maybe just let him stretch out, flush a bird or two, let him get him, and then let's go home. Um, He doesn't really train anymore. It's just... Yeah, that's about it. It's tough to see. I'll tell you that. It's very tough to see.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that. So, how many dogs do you say you have right now for hunting?
2: That I own or that I've got in training?
0: I guess that you own.
2: (laughs) Man, that's a great question. Um, I always have to count them out loud because I do buy and sell dogs uh, as a part of the business plan. So, I'll find a dog that needs a home. And maybe they're just too much energy for somebody. I'll train them, give them obedience, turn them into a great gun dog, and then I'll resell them, or I'll go to a police department and sell them for drug detection or bomb detection. Um, but so right now I've got Buck, Memphis, I've got a little English setter named Andy, I've got a black female named Piper who's in that for sale category. And she's like two and a half. Um, and then I'm going to keep a puppy out of this litter and it's going to be another yellow male to carry on the lines of lone duck and the spirit of, you know, my old man there, Buck.
0: Awesome. So when you, when you sell ones like Piper, two years old, I guess you might get kind of used to it as a trainer. You train dogs, you see them all the time, but, um, you know, speaking of that bond, is it hard to, you know, go on and, and sell them to another hunter or another family or to do other types of work?
2: Yeah. um, I would say, is it hard? No. Do I miss some of them more than others? Definitely. But I always, knock on wood, I've been very lucky that I'm picky on who I sell them to. So they don't just go over the internet, get flown to California and I never see them again or never hear from them again. They've all gone to homes where I somehow can stay in touch. So, um, you do develop the bond, you do care for them obviously. And, but it's cool that I can give what I have with Memphis, my yellow, or excuse me, my black female and buck. And I I can give that to someone else. Maybe they can't do the puppy stage. They don't have time. They don't have, you know, they don't know how to potty, you know, house break them. And they have the don't know the first thing with training a duck dog. I can give that to them without them having to go through all those stages. So it opens up a different aspect of my business and making people happy. That is pretty cool. So it's a really fulfilling thing to do. But yes, to answer the question, it is tough to give them away and sell them sometimes.
0: Mm, yeah so take us through a day in the life of bob owens from the dog training to the duck training to everything you got on just kind of you know you know tell us what you got going on and the day in the life of bob.
2: cool yeah that's a you know so we kind of kid around sometimes like so you want to be a dog trainer right and until you do it and and feel it and know it and you do it day in and day out, you know, it's not an easy life. It's kind of like being a farmer. You're always working. There's always chores to be done. Um, There's always more that you feel like you can do. Um, But basically, my alarm clock goes off around 530 in the morning, get up, shower, coffee, and I roll out and take care of dogs. They get up, they run around for 30 minutes, 45 minutes to an hour, depending on the day. And I, while they're going potty and running and playing and being a dog, I'm doing chores. I'm getting birds out of the freezer. I'm making a plan for the day. I'm just getting things done while they're doing their morning, like doggy daycare style, just having fun. Load them up in the trailer and we head out to the fields and ponds and training grounds. So how many Um, of these,
0: sorry to cut in here, but how many, how many uh, dogs are you taking on this truck and and out to all this stuff?
2: Sure. So I've got a trailer that holds my ATV and 18 dogs. And then I've got uh, a new box, if you will. It's a two hole that's being built. So I'll be able to hold 20 dogs at one time. Um, and it's full right now. So we actually have 20 and that includes my two. So 18 of those on the trailer and then my two ride in the truck with me until my kennel's being built. Um, and we head out to the fields, and it's obedience and force fetch and collar conditioning and fun bumpers with the young ones and dog stand work and wingers with marks and land and water and drills for teaching them how to handle and sit on the whistle and take casts. And it, it kind of – I have to have a good balance between the young dog work where they don't know anything – Then the middle dog work where they're actually developing into a gun dog and I've got to challenge them and show them experiences and then challenging the older dogs who are in the hunt test game and, and running big blinds and big marks. And, you know, I'm trying to take them to the high levels to challenge them as well. So I have to balance throughout the week how to maintain everybody's progress, right? That's kind of the hard part of it as far as I'm concerned right now with my business, um, is making sure everybody's progressing. You're challenging them all without pushing them too far, too fast and keeping it fun. And then, sorry to cut you off. Is is it
1: just you training or do you have other trainers or assistant trainers helping you with all those?
2: No, it's all me, man. Um, all me. So I my brother who's on my podcast, he helps me out a couple days a week um and helps with the podcast and some of the background stuff on the website and things like that. But as far as touching dogs and working dogs, that's all me. So once we do our day, we get back around six six thirty, air dogs, feed dogs air them again, maybe do more obedience with whomever. And my day ends around eight o'clock at night. I go to bed. Um, you know, so it's a run and gun lifestyle. It's a lot of work, but it's very rewarding. Um, and then now with the puppies, boy, that throws an extra batch of fun in there, but I can't tell you how rewarding it is. It's pretty cool.
1: Now, are, are you mixing and matching dogs like are when you take 16 to 18 or 20 dogs out at once? Are they all being trained for gun dogs or are you doing um, like a, a house lab in the mix with that? Just basic training.
2: Yeah. Good question. So, yeah, the house dog, you know, golden doodle is still riding on that trailer and coming with me to the fields and running with the four wheeler and learning place and walking nicely on a leash. And then, you know, their session is done and I grab the next dog out who's a gun dog and we roll with them. Um, So they're each getting two to four sessions a, a day of, of something, right. Whether it's marks or blinds or obedience or force fetch. So they're all getting something each day, multiple times a day. But that house dog that's amongst the pack, they go everywhere with me. So they get, you know, a pretty cool experience. They're not just sitting in a kennel and walking around a yard. They're, they're having a ball.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So uh, I guess what I'd say from there is how, how do you find time to hunt with all that, everything you got going on?
2: Um, it was tough in the early season because I had a lot of dogs. And I don't know. Yeah, it was tough in the early season. I would basically get up at three in the morning, go to the kennel, air everybody, let them play, get all my gear ready, um, head out to wherever I was going to hunt. And then I'd end hunting at, let's say, nine o'clock and go back, air dogs, and then hit the field. So you know, maybe I'd be quote unquote late for work by three, four hours, but you still would get three quarters of a day of great training in and still get your hunting. So it just means earlier day and a little bit later night, but, and then I started to slow down. So all those gun dogs in the fall were starting to go home. So by Thanksgiving, basically I whittled down my kennel and by Christmas time I was on vacation, if you will and just hunted for the last like two weeks and toned it down work-wise. Mm. Gotcha. And
0: so, uh, that's, that brings up kind of another question w- with the, the dogs you have. Um, I know on some of your podcast episodes, you talk a lot about hunt tests, um, and all the different ones. I'm not, you know, I know there's NAVDA and then there's the, well, I'm not going to go into them cause I'm not an expert on the, the hunt test, but, um, What percentage of dogs do you train just for hunt test opposed to um, dogs that are just trained for hunting purposes?
2: So every dog on my truck is a hunting dog. There's somebody's family member that they take hunting. There's probably six or eight out of the 18 or 20 that the owners have high aspirations for the hunt test game so they'll they're more pot committed if you will to keeping the dog in training longer than just the basics um but i would i would say honestly every single one of them is a house dog family member hunting dog and the hunt test game is supplemental and fun and something they can do outside of the season gotcha
0: so with those hunt tests do you do it yourself and if so which ones
2: Oh yeah, definitely. So the old dog Buck got his senior title, which is AKC, and he got a few finished passes, which is HRC. Memphis has a master hunter title who she's four years old. She's my, you know, Buck's quote unquote replacement as bad as that sounds, but she's the go-to gun dog for me now and hunt test competitor. So she's a master hunter and we're working towards qualifying for the master national next year. Um, and then the other dogs that I own, yeah, they all, they all play the game at some level. They're just, they're cool. It's fun, man. I, if you've never done one and, and honestly, I, every time someone calls and says, Hey, I want a puppy or Hey, I want my dog trained. They always say, I don't care about the ribbons. Well, well, Neither do I really, but it's something fun to do all year long. So it gives you a weekend away with your dog. It gives you goals to set so that you can take your dog to the next level. And it also is a pat on the back to the dog and you for all the hard work that you put in. So that ribbon on the wall isn't to like show off or, or whatever. It's just like, man, we did that together and we worked really hard. And that's something along with the pictures of duck season that we can be proud of. I mean, I'm super proud of Buck, my old dog. Like He was my first, and I got him to a really pretty good level that, you know, I never really knew what I could do with him. And so I look at those things and the memories that we made doing it, and I highly encourage people to, you don't have to care about it, just try it. And if you don't like it, cool, but try it.
0: Awesome. So kind of a question on that, um, that note. So my dog chief, um, he, I bought him from a farm, like a local farm. Um, so he doesn't have papers. Uh, I doubt he has, you know, pedigree, all that kind of stuff. So without, without that kind of stuff, are you able to compete in any of those type
2: of tests? So don't quote me on this one, but I am very, I'm I'm like ninety-nine percent sure that in the AKC hunt test, junior, senior master, your dog has to be registered and that stuff. But I believe HRC, which is the United Kennel club, they allow dogs of any breed and all that. You can't get a title, but you can earn all the respect and ribbons, like you can take a Again, I'm 99.99% on this one. You can take a rescue dog, and if it goes out and picks up birds and runs blinds and does everything to pass a test, you can get those ribbons and pass a test. Um, So that would be one. And then there's another one called NARA, the North American Hunting Retriever Association, and I'm 99% sure that you don't have to be registered for that one either. So if someone is in your situation and wants to try it, it's called the Hunting Retriever Club, H R C or NARA, North American Hunting Retriever Association. I'll check those out.
0: Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely something that I'd be interested in checking out in the future. Um definitely something I'd love to do with my dog. He is not a stellar duck dog. Um not his own fault. My fault. I'm not the best trainer. I'm a trainer in training (laughs) I guess and, uh, you know, it's just something to strive for to make him a better duck dog and work on that stuff. That'd be really cool to take a look at Hunter. before we jump to the general questions. Do you have anything to add, um, before we do the lightning round rather?
1: Um, boy, I have so many, but uh, you wouldn't even be able to go to sleep tonight. Um, I, I guess my, my two questions I was thinking of was, uh, when you hunt typically, and maybe it changes all the time, do you just take your dog dog out hunting with you or or do you take uh will you take both of your dogs or will you take some of the dogs you're training out with you um or does that change all the time
2: yeah no that's a good question um most of the time memphis gets to go um i did a youth hunt guided youth hunt the other day and i took one of the chesapeake's that i trained and she did fantastic um or if the d- client dog has progressed far enough in their training and they can hunt with another dog safely, reliably, and efficiently, then they go and Memphis goes. So we'll hunt two dogs most of the time, even if it doesn't make sense. Nobody likes to leave their dog behind. So it'll be like, well, we don't know if we'll even see anything, but bring them both anyways. And we just trade back and forth. Like anything on my side, Memphis gets. Anything on your side, your dog gets. Mm-hmm. And as long as they're steady, bring them
1: okay yeah the other question i had for you was uh like if if a a customer just wants a dog just to be house trained so the time that dog needs to be trained is probably far less than a gun dog right um so you probably have a mix of dogs which you know hey i'm only gonna need this dog um maybe you know X amount of months versus this dog more months. So are you constantly having dogs come in and out of that trailer um, throughout the season? Or is it pretty much you have this X amount of dogs and you you know that's who you're going to be with for the next four, five, six, ten months?
2: That's a cool question. Yeah. So the obedience dogs are on a three week plan, basically. So... It takes me two to three weeks, depending on the dog, to run them through walking nicely on a leash, coming when called, sit down, place, stop jumping, quit barking, just be more disciplined, controllable house dog, and reliable. Then I do three follow-up sessions with the owner where I teach them what I taught the dog, and they can progress from there. So those dogs generally, obviously, rotate often. Um... And like I said earlier in the podcast, I'm more at like the 95 percent gun dogs, five percent house dogs. So like this month, the month of February, I've got two house dogs, and the rest are gun dogs. Those gun dogs are on the basic gun dog program, steady, fully obedient, collar conditioned, gunfire, ready to hunt, but no hand signals. Um, that's a four month program. So that dog is staying with me on the truck for four months. And then after that, if they want to stay longer and learn blinds, sure. But so there is like a rotation, but, you know, I really get to know these animals. I really get to know their personality and, and, you know, it's pretty wild, but I know the owners, they become friends. It's, it's pretty special, but the rotation of the truck is Kind of like that. that, I hope that answered the question.
1: Yeah. And and no matter what the pedigree or let's say you got a stubborn dog with your knowledge and experience, you pretty much have it dialed in. No matter what condition that dog is, you can pretty much dial it in. It's going to be the same each time.
2: Yeah, that's a fair fair, uh, question. I don't. Every dog is different. So. I'm trying to think of how I want to put this, but like there are some breeds that are just better than others. And then there are some dogs, no matter what breed, that are awesome. And some are the same breed and they're not that smart. Don't try that hard. And, you know, it takes me more time per day and maybe even more time longer than four months to get it done. So your end result they are all going to be steady they're all going to be picking up ducks and you know ready to hunt but that might look very differently between dog A and dog B of the same breed and dog A of one breed and dog B of another breed so i guess simplifying like every dog's different no matter what breed and the goal is to have them all at a certain level by 4 months but it still can look meh, but that's what the dog is like. Mm-hmm. And then some dogs are like, holy cow, that thing is unbelievable. Yeah. Well, yep.
0: And that all probably leads back to pedigree and the better the pedigree, the more likely you are to get that four month dog that looks like a, a stud straight up, you know, opposed it, to
2: it definitely helps. It stacks a deck in your favor for sure. Um, It also has to do with how the puppy was raised for those first six months or a year. If they were pampered, and I I pamper my dogs. Memphis is sleeping at my feet right now. Like I love them just like everybody else. Um, But if they never have to work for anything, they are given treats all the time. They never are taught to learn how to learn. Um, No discipline, no self-control, then they're definitely they might end up being fantastic in the end, but it's gonna take me a lot of time and effort to teach them work ethic and passion for the retrieving and swimming and all that. So I think how people raise the puppy, it makes my life a lot easier if they do it right. Awesome.
0: Well, I think right now is a perfect time to jump into the lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. So we'll jump right into it. What kind of shotgun do you shoot?
2: Browning Satori 12 gauge.
0: That's a good, good choice. Uh, <laughs> what kind of shells do you shoot?
2: Heavy metal, three-inch threes. Three-inch threes on everything? Pretty much. Ducks I and mean, geese. If I'm go- if I am only shooting geese, then, then I'll probably shoot twos. I rarely shoot BBs.
0: Face paint or no face paint?
2: No face paint. Keep your head down, brother. <laughs>
0: you go with a face mask or do you just keep your head down?
2: Just keep my head down. I mean, I've got a really terrible beard. Um, (laughs) It is not any uh, Dr. Duck or, you know, nobody like that. But no, I just, you know what? It's, I have nothing against it. I'm kind of being goofy about it, but I just don't like taking the face paint off. It's a pain in the butt. So I just don't do it. Keep my head down. I watch the ducks underneath the brim of my hat and that's it.
0: There you go. Uh, what what size chokes or what what type of choke do you use?
2: So the Browning Satori is an over under. So I've got a modified and an improved. So the improved shoots first, the modified shoots second. So I can reach out a little bit further. Um, when I was first starting out, we had a harder time decoying birds, so I ran a um, like a mid level but further choke. So not a full. Forget what it was by heavy metal mid-range or I don't remember and it was a tighter pattern but I, I don't have any aftermarket choke tubes just modified and improved
0: so that's a definitely a good gun choice but do you ever miss having the third shot
2: um the amount of times I miss having the third shot are not often enough to where I want a third like I want a different gun I love shooting that gun. That gun, uh, it fits me right. I shoot it. If you gave me your gun, I wouldn't shoot it as well as mine. I just am confident with it, and it kills birds. So if I need to smoke one on the water that's crippled, I break the gun open, throw another shell in, and, and hit it. You know. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not super common.
0: Gotcha. Kind of a little side note. I, the first gun I started duck hunting with was a uh, Satori as well. Um, but I, honestly, I struggled with it. Um, I just couldn't hit anything. And I and I think partly that's just being a new hunter at the time. Uh, but I switched over to an A5 and these both were guns that I, I got from my grandpa. Um, mm-hmm. And man, it's probably like you said, uh, you know, Sometimes you just get a gun that fits you. So I know exactly what you're saying with that. I got an A5 and I just can't shoot anything else. Just if it's not broke, don't fix it. And I can't switch from that A5. It's just awesome.
2: That's right. So I actually just bought um, from a gun show, a used like 1970s, beautiful A5 light 20. And I've been shooting that at like Woodcock and Grouse and Pheasants and, um, it's a sweet little gun, but I still all day shoot that Satori, man.
0: Yeah, that's actually pretty similar to the gun I have. Mine's 1970 as well, but it's a 20-gauge a Magnum instead of the light.
2: Oh, cool. That's really cool, man. It's even cooler that it was your grandfather's. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, it's pretty cool. Um,
0: so from there, what is your favorite type of habitat to hunt in?
2: I like being in a marsh where you have to carry your decoys in and every time you pull up your foot, you kind of get stuck and that muck smells like a marsh. You know what I mean? Like everybody that duck hunts knows that smell and you wade in and you're up to your hips and you kind of tuck into some reeds and put the dog stand right there and you're just, you're in the middle of the swamp. Uh, No blind, just you and a dog or you and a dog and some buddies tucked into the reeds. That's my favorite thing to hunt.
0: Awesome. Uh, Do you go with a big spread or or a small spread?
2: Uh, I prefer a small spread because I don't feel like picking them all up. But the one thing that I do like is motion in the decoys um, and fully flocked. So I'd rather have less decoys but they're fully flocked. Um, if I feel like screwing around with it, I'll put a jerk string on some. And then those Mojo flock flickers. Have you seen those things? Yep.
0: Yeah, I know exactly what dude, you're talking about.
2: Dude, those are like little duck magnets. I love them. So I'll put a couple of them in my spread with maybe a dozen fully flocked or 16 or 18 fully flocked mallards. And that's it. Make it easy.
0: Do those, uh, th- do those Mojo... Are they called flick-a-flockers? Or <laughs> what? Some.
2: Yeah, so I'm not like spying. I have no affiliation, so I have no idea what they're called. I just know they work.
0: Okay, so do they make ripples, or do they just have the spinning wing kind of effect?
2: So it's a spinning wing effect. They're a little tiny wings, so you're not flaring ducks. They're not like honing in and looking at it and staring at it. Plus, they're on a timer, so it'll like spin for five or eight seconds and then stop so throughout your decoy spread those ducks that are working are their eyes are getting caught throughout your spread of like little flash little flash little flash and i'm it just it, it's sweet man first like the mojo that just keeps spinning and the ducks just stare at it and they're like nope old uh johnny down there he's not he's just spinning his arms what is he doing and flare off of it so yep
0: yeah, yeah. um uh how many dogs do you hunt with
2: uh, again, it depends on who's hunting with me. So if it's me and my brother, it's probably just Memphis. Um, if it's me and a couple clients and their dogs are like the caliber a dog is good enough, then we'll hunt Memphis and their dog. Um, so it kind of depends, man. Usually just one, but two is pretty common as well.
0: Okay. And, um, Besides silver, what is your favorite color of lab?
2: Besides what color? Silver. <laughs> my favorite color I think is probably gonna be black right now. I just I love yellows for taking pictures, and yellow was my first gun dog. I had a chocolate growing up that I loved dearly, but a black lab that's wet and the sun's hitting them, mm, nothing beats it, man. Okay.
0: And last question, which breed of dog would you prefer to hunt ducks with if labs didn't exist?
2: Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm going to go Chesapeake Bay retriever. And that's a real tight, (laughs) that's a real tight, uh with golden retriever there are some phenomenal golden retrievers that i've worked with and same with Chessies. like i think it comes down to like the dog's personality and their heart and drive for for the hunt that makes it special it doesn't matter what they look like to me as long as they're loving it and having fun and trying hard i'll take any dog hunting that does that
0: awesome awesome all right. Let's go ahead and jump into some general dog questions. Hunter, you want to go ahead and jump in with your first one?
1: Well, while we're on the, I actually had a question what your opinion was of Chessies and if you had much experience in training them.
2: Yeah. I've trained a bunch of Chessies. Um They're not a lab. So what I mean by that is I'm going to speak in general terms. So like There's going to be a, there's definitely a lab on my truck that is not this way. But in general, labs want to please. Labs will do drill work over and over and over and over again. They don't get bored. They're just like, oh, we're having fun. You're having fun. I'm having fun. Let's keep having fun. Mm -hmm. So they have a great work ethic and you can also make mistakes with them. So as a new trainer and you guys are working your own dogs, like, you might make mistakes that your dog doesn't get bent out of shape and, like, lose his motivation to keep trying. If you do that with a chessy, and again, generalization, not all of them, but but if you do that with a Chessie, they'll hold it against you. And, like, you know, they don't want to do drill work. It's boring to them. Throw some fun stuff in there. Um, so I do like Chessies. I think there's some really, 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 really talented ones out there. I think there are some that are slower. And so if you want a little bit slower, more methodical dog, get one. But uh, yeah, labs, man, they're good. <laughs> Keep rolling
0: on them, on the Hunter. I know you got a list over there.
1: Um, so British labs, American labs, is there a preference as well as – Have you noticed any difference in training um, ability or uh, anything in colors? Do you have a a color that you prefer you've seen had better success with it or not necessarily?
2: Yeah, sure. So I'll answer the British versus American and, and even I'll throw out English. So just to define it for people who may not know, an English lab is your show dog, shorter, stubbier big thick otter tail, big blocky head, show dog. So if you type in like Westminster Kennel Club, show dog, lab, that's what that is. That's an English lab. And then the British lab is not that far off of what an American lab looks like. Like you can look at an English lab and know it's an English, and you can look at an American and know it's an American. And the British are very similar to the American. They're more athletically built. They're a little bit more slender. Their endurance is better, like they're just more athletic, okay? Um the differences and so a British lab is straight from the UK, England, Ireland, Scotland. They aren't from, you know, uh they aren't bred in Tennessee. They can be bred in Tennessee, but they are the parents are from the UK so does that sort of make sense i'm trying to i I can maybe botch that one but they're not they're not uh diluted with american labs or english labs or anything they're like they're straight up from the uk um my personal preference is and always will be an american lab i think there's some really good british labs out there and i'm friends with breeders of british labs and i've got friends that have them and there's really nothing wrong with them at all but i would speak in generalizations of they are a little bit softer so talking about that chassis and making mistakes right so let's say you lose your patience on your dog the the british lab is going to take it to heart and they're going to be more bummed out generally and so if you are learning and growing and make mistakes with your dog, a dog that can kind of take it a little bit easier and roll with the punches, that would be more the American style. Mm. Um, also speaking, those, these are all generalizations. Um, you know, and, and that's it. Like, I don't want to bash a British lab. I think there's a lot of marketing behind that side of the labrador world and i think they're great family dogs i think they're great duck dogs i think people get them are spending more money than they have to it's a lab it's a good dog you just bought a good dog congrats but it's like i'm wearing sick gear or i'm wearing filson it's like i got a british lab well cool (laughs) you know just you got a dog it's awesome man enjoy it Uh, that's
0: that's a funny way. Of, I've never heard it put that way. So uh, British I labs. I probably offended a few people on that. But is this,
2: <laughs> they're good dogs. I, I do like them. So I'm maybe being busting chops, but it's all good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then you said color. You asked about color. Yeah. Their, their yep. stuff. I um, mean, I,
1: I know you, you said you, you prefer or your favorite color is a black. I just didn't know if training and response
2: if you so i did a podcast question on this on my podcast um and i kind of broke it down as best i could and i'll i'll if someone wants to hear that probably 10 minute tutorial they can go check it out on that podcast but basically if you look at over the years the field champions master hunters across the board let's say it's 70 percent black labs then 15% Yellows, 10% Chocolates, and 5% Golden's, Chessies, you name other breeds. Like So if you look at that winning rate or that pass rate, a lot of them are Blacks. So you would err on the side that's saying Blacks are easier to train, Blacks are more talented, and I kind of get that mentality. Um, and I don't necessarily disagree with it. I kind of agree with it. I think there's a lot of really nice black labs out there. And so it's harder maybe to find a yellow lab with that kind of talent. But what I err on the side of parents, grandparents, great grandparents, look at that pedigree, look at what they've done in the field. Do they have a brain in between their ears? Were they trainable? Do they have a nose on them? You can't become a talented hunt test field trial competitor. If you don't have a great nose or, uh, Trainability and teamwork and stuff like that. Like it's really hard to get to a high level without it. So you're going to err on the side of getting a puppy that's the same. So whether it's chocolate, yellow, or black, that dog's parents and grandparents are going to help stack the deck in your favor that you're going to get a dog that likes to retrieve, likes to swim, likes birds, um, is easier to train or likes to train and you can work with it. So I would err on the side of, if I had to scale it, black, yellow, then chocolate, but you might have a chocolate that blows all the blacks on my truck out of the water. And I would err on the side, it's because the parents and grandparents were phenomenal. So that's kind of where I take it. Makes sense. So um,
0: question for me now, Um, do you have any
2: drills to improve drive of a dog? uh yeah man wing clipped pigeons so i would i would say like drills wouldn't be the word um but things to build drive um wing clip pigeons would be huge so if you can do a few different things uh you can go under a bridge and catch them Uh, at night spotlight them and catch them under a bridge you can go to a farm there's there's definitely farmers that are like dude you want to get these pigeons out of my hayloft? get them (laughs) out Um, you just got to be willing to knock on the door and introduce yourself and tell them what you're doing but if you pluck the flight feathers on one wing that pigeon's going to kind of hobble through the air and fly 30 40 yards but slowly and that dog's going to take off like literally at its tail feathers chasing it And it's going to run through a brick wall trying to catch it Um, generally, but I'm going to say it it unlocks and flips that light bulb off most of the time. Um, Fun bumpers. So getting that puppy teased up, jacked up, you know, fired up to level 10 and then throw it and then end after two or three. So if you use bumpers or tennis balls or whatever to tire your dog out, so let's say it's 30 retrieves when you get home from work and you're just in the backyard and you're ripping through, throwing bumpers for him and he's tired out and goes and lays down in the shade. No, like that's terrible. I never want a dog to get bored and I never want to tire a dog out from that kind of activity. I always want to leave a young dog wanting more. If they want more today, tomorrow when they see that bumper, it's go time. Um, Another common mistake is letting puppies or young dogs have a bumper in the house um, and have it be like a chew toy, if you will. So the way I equate it to people is I love eating steak, but if I ate steak for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a month, I'm going to be tired of steak. It's not going to mean as much. And if you told me, Hey Bob, let's go for a run. I'll buy you a steak after I'd be like, nah, I'm good, bud. Like I, I don't need it. So if he or she has that bumper all the time and also gets a million retrieves anytime you want, then that bumper doesn't mean as much to them, okay? So that's another thing to do. The other thing is a lot of people will steady their dog up too soon. So I'll get a video from Instagram and it'll be somebody saying, hey, check out my dog, he's already steady and he's three months old. I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, no dude, don't. Because to steady a dog up takes that drive out. So you're telling that dog, don't get excited, sit still, don't move. Okay, now go. And that puppy is going to, you're taking the fun away, basically. So if you, at that young age, are using the fun bumpers to jack them up and build the drive and build the intensity so that they'll go into cold water and break ice, they'll go in thick covers and thorns and, you know, nothing will stand in their way for a bird or a bumper. Then steady them up. It's going to be harder to steady them up, granted, but you can do it. So it's easier to go that route than like have to pump them up and cheerlead them into liking it. So don't steady them up. Um, What else? You know, if you don't have the ability to get dead ducks all the time, um, I save wings. So I'll take wings and rip them off the duck and tape them with electrical tape to a bumper now you got a fake real duck for many many uses um that always helps things like that real birds few only a few retrieves don't steady them up and don't nitpick them like i'm big on obedience i think being an obedient dog it makes a good gun dog but if you have a dog that Lacks drive and you just nitpick them for everything they do they're just going to throw their hands out and be like all right screw it if you're going to be that way i'm not doing it so that would be something else
0: hmm. well i definitely have made some uh, mistakes along the way it seems
2: <laughs> <laughs> dude we all have we all have
0: so you c- kind of mentioned uh just like drills and stuff you could do, like the live pigeons and all that stuff. Um, My dog on a scale, if you took from the drive, he'd be on the lower end of the scale for sure. So would those drills and the live pigeon stuff be appropriate to work with a three-year-old dog to try to improve drive?
2: 100%, man. 100%. So I would still err on the side of always leave that dog wanting more, find yourself I mean, there's resources all over. You can get, you can get real birds. Like there's a website. Um, it's called Z Birds. Z is in zebra, and they'll ship birds all over the country via the postal service, and they're not that expensive. So for a hundred bucks, you can get a dozen live birds that are like chucker or six pheasants or quail, and they'll ship them right to your post office, and you got them, and you can go to the field, and you can train your dog with real birds. So if you can't catch them, there's a way to find a, you know, there's a will, there's a way. Um, so I would highly suggest you get him some birds and use them to build that drive. Let them build that chase and just live for it. The other thing I would do uh, is like when you get them out, high pitched voice, cheerlead him, pump them up, get them jacked up, throw a few fun bumpers, then get them going with some steadiness. Um, that helps, man. I think I think anything I said about those puppies is going to be helpful. If you notice that he's getting bored, pump him up as best you can and then end it. Don't do just like everybody does just one more retrieve, one more blind, one more <laughs> whatever. And it always implodes. <laughs>
1: um, question for, that I have is typically when do you start training um, the lab's Uh, How early will you start on them?
2: Yeah. So the answer is immediately um, like this little yellow male puppy that I'm going to keep. He'll get trained right away. I mean, we're going to do little puppy bumpers in uh, a hallway. Uh, I'm going to teach him with treats to do place and sit and come when he's called and not chew. And I mean, training is for a zero to six month old puppy is all people, places, and things, socialization, and build that retrieve drive. So he doesn't ever have a bad day in his life. He learns to go up to potty outside, crate training, um, don't bark at me all the time, uh, and love to retrieve. And then at six months old is when clients come to train and when formal things start happening. So like my puppy's already going to know sit, but I'm not making him sit. He's just going to sit because he's getting a treat or, you know, you gently lift up on the leash. At six months, we do formal training, so heel work, collar conditioning. Once their adult teeth come in, we can start force fetch um, and then just throughout. But I would have to imagine that this puppy at four months old is going to be getting wing clip pigeons and 7,500 yard marks and, you know, be rolling and swimming and doing Doing some pretty cool things at a very young age. I'm not expecting him to, I'm just going to develop and help him get there.
0: So on negative reinforcement compared to positive reinforcement, I know positive obviously, uh, would be kind of the preferred method, but is there a place for negative reinforcement? And, um, I guess how much would be too much for a dog to handle?
2: Okay. Great question. So I think positive reinforcement is super important and we all err on that. Like, that's the goal. I'm having fun. You're having fun. We're all having fun. Um, but I also think that giving a dog a correction and then showing it what you want and letting him make a good life choice is totally cool. It's like, for instance, this is an analogy that I use with people. My mom used to tell me to go clean my room. Bob, go clean your room. Bob, go clean your room. I'd be like, "Uh uh-huh. Bob, go clean your room. Yep. uh Uh-huh. Go clean your room. Dad got home. I was already heading upstairs to clean my room before he could even get it out of his mouth, right? Because my dad would make me do it. And he, I knew there'd be consequences. So if I didn't go clean my room, there was a correction. If my mom said, like, oh, I'll give, I'm going to make you your favorite dessert if you clean your room. I'd probably be like, eh, all right, I'll think about it and still go and do it because I probably was still going to get that dessert. So, you know, I think there's a time and a place for corrections. I think I do it all the time. I mean, you have to teach with it, but you also have to heavily rely on positive reinforcement too. Um, and I think part of your question was like, what's too much? That's really hard to say. Um, I think it depends on the dog. I think it depends on the infraction. I err on the side of like, did the dog hear me? Did the dog understand me? Did he understand? Have I taught him enough of what I'm asking him to do? If there's no doubt in my mind that he knows and he's blowing me off, not trying, giving zero effort, we're going to get a correction. And it doesn't mean I'm going to come down lightning bolts flaring, but it means he's going to get a correction. I'm going to stop him. I'm going to show him and I'm going to have him do it. And so he learned that, well, he told me to do it. I have to do it. And then I praise. So it's uncomfortable with a correction, comfortable because he complied. And then I praise him. So it's a really easy thing for him to understand. You lift up on the leash, tell him sit. It's uncomfortable, but hits the ground, relax the leash and praise. Uncomfortable, comfortable and praise. So I hope that answered your question. It's kind of like an elaborate question. Yeah, we yeah. could do a whole podcast on, but
0: <laughs> so kinda kind of just to dive a little bit deeper, not going any not going crazy or anything, but um kind of what is your preferred method of correction? I know it's gonna depend on each scenario, but kind of like an example when my dog was bad growing up, my parents had a rolled up newspaper, and they'd smack the dog on the nose, you know you know, bad dog and hit it on the nose and then you know my grandpa um I can remember a couple instances, you know, his dog wouldn't stay. And he had very, very well-trained um, pointing dogs. And if he had an issue like that, you know, you'd take him by the collar and drag him back over there and say, you know, I said stay and put him back there and um, you know, maybe give him just a little bit of a shake. Uh, but, yeah, you know, kind of what is the preferred method just in a general sense of, of how you correct a dog? Is it like a stronger nick with the collar or um, I guess, I don't know if that well enough but uh.
2: no you're explaining the correction well enough and the answer is it depends on the infraction it depends on the dog's knowledge it depends on a lot of different things so maybe for instance if I could just answer what you brought up so like on your parents like smacking them on the nose I probably wouldn't do that I'd probably grab him by the collar or I have my puppies and young dogs Carry around like a dollar store four foot leash. So if they chew it, you throw it out, and you got another dollar store leash. Um, and I'll just take that leash and pop them with the leash, like like you would if you were walking at a heel, right? You just pop the lead and give a little mini correction. So if they're chewing on the corner of your, you know, chair, grab the leash, pop it, tell them no. To me, kind of like goes right back
0: up. Is that what you mean by pop it?
2: Yeah, I yes, like I don't mean pop them with it, like hit them with it. I mean like tug on it, pop and release, tug it. Like you're doing like a little jab, pop and release, pop and release. Um, So I would do, I would use that. So there's leash corrections, verbal corrections, um, e-collar corrections. So with your grandfather's example of if the dog moved off of sit or place or down or whoa or whatever, I will put that dog back on the place that he broke from. So if I told him sit on a dog stand and I go out and put out decoys and he breaks that sit and comes out and swims with me, I'm going to walk my butt back, put that dog back on the stand and like give a little shake. No, sit. And so instinctually, uh, let's say a mother wolf is in a den with puppies. Puppy ventures out of the den. It's not safe out there. Mother grabs it by the scruff, puts it back in the den. Puppy ventures back out. She grabs it by the scruff, puts it back in the den. After two or three times, puppy's like, dang, mom, I guess you mean stay in here. So for us, if we kind of grab them a little bit and lift them up off their feet and like, no, buddy, I said sit. And you put them back where he broke from in their brain. They're like, hmm, better not move. He meant right here. Um, If you allow him to get up and move like three feet closer to you and then he sits back down and you're like, oh, good, sit, nice job. And then you back up again and he gets up and moves one foot closer to you and you and then sits down. You've now allowed him to what we call creep. So he'll just like scoot closer and do whatever he wants. He's still kind of sitting, right? He, he gets there, he sits, but he's breaking the actual don't move, sit there command. Hmm. So I would physically pick him, you know, grab by the collar and put him back. So your grandfather was correct. Um... And then there's times for a knee collar and whatnot, but again, that's a lot of, that's some heavy level.
0: <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Yet another one you want to throw in there, Hunter?
1: Uh, yeah, easy one. Uh, what kind of dog food do you use, or would you recommend?
2: Uh, the recommendation is the best one you can afford. <laughs> um, so. I don't necessarily prescribe to like the whole grain free and you know the there's a wolf chasing a deer on the thing so it must mean your dog's a wild animal and can kill deer now um I think a lot of that has to do with marketing I think so I feed Karina pro plan sport um, I'm looking into switching to Yukonuba for many different reasons but I'm super happy with pro plan I have nothing bad to say about it so Um, it's more or less like we might work out a deal with Yukanuba and I really like their food. And I think it's really good with the dogs. It's high quality. So you want good protein, um, and a high protein content. You want good fats and high fat content. And then to be honest with you, these companies are billionaires. You know, Purina Nestle is a billion dollar company. They have scientists from the best universities, watching dog nutrition and how it works you you know like how they may make a mistake they may have a recall and all that stuff like they may not be perfect but i'm telling you they do their research and know what they're doing so i trust a company like that or Yukonuba um versus some all natural that's 90 dollars for a 30 pound bag but uh it makes us feel good um, so hope that answered that question.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, Hunter, you got any more questions you can't live without asking?
1: One more for you. Um, for the, the, the DIYer, is there, is there one thing that you would say, one recommendation or a, a detriment that you could do to your dog that you would say don't do or rec a recommendation to do if you had one thing to recommend?
2: Yeah. Uh, number one thing is you can't have a gun dog if they're afraid of guns. So we probably should have talked about this earlier. I mean, this is like the biggest, you can't take your dog duck hunting if he's afraid of gunfire. So it's really important to follow a process. And I have a YouTube channel where we go over that process, but you basically to break it down quickly, you have a helper start out with a 22 pistol or 22 blank revolver type of thing that you can get online. Um, and they're a hundred yards away and you have the dog on the other end of that hundred yards and you're playing fun bumpers and you throw that bumper. And when the dog's halfway to it, you raise your hand and that gunner shoots the, the pistol. So what is happening is that dog is full tilt, super excited, making noise Right, because he's hauling butt to the bumper, so he's making his own noise, and he hears this little dinky pink in the distance. Dog didn't, wasn't phased. You move your gunner into seventy-five yards. Do it again, fifty yards. Do it again, and then kind of hover in that fifty-yard range for that session. Just get him comfortable at fifty. Then two two days later, whatever your possibility is, start at seventy-five and move into twenty-five, then fifty, and move into where you're throwing that bumper and the gun's going off right next to you at a twenty-two. Okay, then I just jump right up to the 12 gauge. If the dog shows any signs of getting nervous or stops retrieving or what have you, then I'm going to back that gunner up. I'm going to give him a few freebies with the bumper and then try the gunshot further away again and just slowly ease back into it. Um, Then I'll work my way up to the 12 gauge. Same process, 175, 50, 50, 25 next to you over a few sessions. There is no rush to this. I get a lot of questions or a lot of like comments like, oh, he was great with gunfire. I shot over him yesterday while he was eating. And it's like, (laughs) you're lucky, dude. Like, I'm glad he didn't get phased, but you could have ruined your dog. Or the puppy's two months old. They literally just get it home and they take it out to the gun range and shoot with it. Like, I want to make sure that puppy has a lot of drive, is loving to retrieve, very confident in itself, and then start the process. If you do it too soon, you can ruin a dog. If you take a dog to the duck blind before they're ready, and you've got me and Hunter and you, Jordan, and we're all hunting, and that's nine rounds blasting down range, and the dog's like, what the heck just happened? He didn't see a duck fall. He didn't see anything happen. He just heard the nine, you know, nine round salute. Um, That can freak a dog out. So you really want to do this right and and introduce it slowly and properly. So that's number one. Good information.
0: All right. Well, I think that's just about all for us tonight. Um, we really appreciate you coming on and going long and answering all our dog questions. Uh, really appreciate it. Great information. Um, if you could let everyone know where they can find you on social media, the internet, anywhere like that, just go ahead now.
2: Sure, man. So first of all, thanks for having me. I enjoyed talking with you guys. You had a lot of great questions. It was nice talking dogs and ducks. Um, so again, my name is Bob Owens. My website is Loan Duck Outfitters, L-O-N-E, not like the loan from the bank. Uh, but if you want to loan me some, you're cool with it. <laughs> but L-O-N-E, D-U-C-K, com. Instagram is where I spend most of my time. I really enjoy doing stories and creating stories, teaching people how to work their dogs and kind of just showing them what we're doing that day and all the different dogs in our kennel. So that's at lone duck. Um, you know, that's pretty much it. I'm on YouTube, but if you check it out, you'll, you'll find us. Uh, so thanks for having me. It was a pleasure and an honor and I enjoyed it. So if you guys, your followers and listeners want to reach out. Instagram's the way to go.
0: Awesome. Sweet deal. We really appreciate you coming on as well. And hopefully this won't be the last time because uh, I definitely have a lot more dog questions I could ask you.
2: <laughs> Very good, man. Well, you enjoy Chief. Build that drive. Uh, Hunter, man, it was a pleasure speaking with you and uh, we'll do it again. I promise.
0: All right, folks. Thanks everybody for, for joining in. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles, Hunter, HG Innovations, and Bob, from Lone Duck, and we'll see you guys next time.